on your phone, I mean, you guys are laughing at all of us. And Habakkuk brings in this book, the small book, some hard questions to God. Hard questions that even God isn't surprised by. That God uh, knows this is not too hard to ask. And we get to see what happens when Habakkuk brings these questions. So I, I think that we see in Habakkuk that we can bring questions to God. He's the one who hears. He's the one who responds. But we also get to the end of Habakkuk where we see Habakkuk kind of humbly trust and have confidence in God based not primarily on what He answers or doesn't answer, but based primarily on who God is and what He has done. So the book of Habakkuk, it starts kind of uniquely for the book of the prophets. Uh, It starts with not Him declaring to the people, here's what God says, but instead it starts with with Habakkuk questioning God. If you look in Habakkuk chapter 1, starting in verse 1, this is the oracle of Habakkuk the prophet saw. And he says this, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. Or cry to you, violence! And you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. And so the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. And so justice goes forth perverted. So we see an interesting time with an interesting question that we get from Habakkuk. Here we have, he's likely in this time period that it's significant in Israel's history. This is before, what we talked about before, this is before the Babylonian invasion. Before Babylon comes and destroys the city of Jerusalem, 587. So it's before that, somewhere in between uh, David, Solomon, and when the Babylonians invade. It's possible that this, and we don't know for sure, but it's possible that Habakkuk writes during the reign of Josiah. If you remember Josiah, he was a good king. He was one of the few good kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. But no matter what king is on the throne at this time, Judah is a mess. And we know that at least it is in part a mess because they had just had one of the worst kings in history, and his name was Manasseh. We read about him in 2 Kings 21. Just read this briefly for us so we kind of get a picture of possibly what the context and culture was going on around Habakkuk as he's writing and crying out, why is this happening? So Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 50 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Not off to a good start. He rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, Hezekiah was a fairly good king. He rebuilt the the places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. And he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah. And as Ahab, king of Israel, had done, Ahab, one of the worst, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I'll put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering. And he used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. And he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And he carved the image of Asherah that he had made. He set in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon and to his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever." And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I gave to their fathers. If only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen. And Manasseh led them astray to more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. So this is... 
probably, likely, at least on the, the, the heels of this reign, is where Habakkuk is riding. And so you could tell that Manasseh had led them in an evil direction. And it wasn't just him. Like, he didn't just ob- not obey the law. Like, he led people in worshiping idols. He, he led the people, in a way, away from the Lord. And so it doesn't even matter. Even if Josiah is on the throne at this point, he's starting out pretty young. So even if he is there and trying to start some reforms, you could tell, like, this is, a, this is a destructive place. This is a mess in every sense of the word. They are a mess Spiritually, Primarily, that's the, the biggest problem, right? They're, they're serving other gods. They're going after other gods that the, the other kingdoms would go after. But they're a mess even physically. Like Their enemies are encroaching on them. And they have no one that's leaning forward the charge to, to do what God had said He would do for His people who were faithful. I mean, at this time, what is going on is that God had promised them, I'm going to punish you for your wickedness. And they're awaiting that. They're in the time of, we know God has promised this. He's prophesied this. He's warned us. And yet, they haven't returned. They haven't repented of their sins. They have these blatant covenant breaches against God that are so obvious that like he's telling them in the text over and over again that the hint is like he's doing exactly the opposite of what God had told them to do. And in the midst of all of this, all that's going on in Judah, we have Habakkuk, a prophet, one who's faithful to God. And he comes and he's taking stock of the situation. He sees what's going on around him. He sees how bad it is, how evil it is, how wicked it is. He looks around and he says, God, what is going on here? How is this happening? How long are you going to let this continue? What Manasseh and others have started, the evil and the wickedness that has just been pervasive in the land, how long are you going to let this go on? So prophets had come and told them about their sin and gone. And the godly, at this time, are more likely the minority. And they probably suffer. You get those kind of hints from these first four verses in Habakkuk that the, the, the truly faithful people to God are the ones who are suffering. They're at the edges of society, of, of Judah, the people of God, where Jerusalem is, where the king was supposed to sit, all these things. Iniquity is rampant, destruction, strife, and contention are all around. What we have is unchecked evil in every space that is there. It's prophets, it's priests, it's kings, it's everywhere, it's the people. The wicked are flourishing, and the law that was, was to be kept seems to be ineffective. No one is holding to it. Justice is perverted, he says. Justice is being trampled upon, and the righteous are being trampled, and the wicked are going further forward. They are the ones who are increasing in their prosperity, not decreasing. And so when Habakkuk comes to God and asks these questions, it comes from a very real place of looking around and saying, something is off, and he rightly turns to God. These are legitimate problems. He is not a complainer. He's not saying, well, this seems uncomfortable. He's saying, like, there are serious things that are going on. There's sins. There's, there's stuff that's happening that should not be happening among the people of God. Why? What's going on here, God? That's what he's saying. Are you going to let this happen? Are you going to let that go? Aren't you our God? What's happening here in the land? And I wonder if you've ever had any questions like that. And likely, even the way I've, I've set it up, like, you, you probably can't say, like, yeah, it's been that serious before. But maybe you've had those kind of questions of, God, what are you doing here? Why, why are you letting this kind of stuff happen? Why, why, aren't you letting, why are you letting this go? Why aren't you acting here? How long are you going to let that happen? Every single day we could say this. We, we know that every single day Christians are being captured, tortured, killed. All over the world. Every day this is happening. Our brothers and sisters are being taken and beheaded. And we can look at that and say, How long? How long are you going to do this, God? How long are your people going to be slaughtered? Why are you letting this go on? 
Why would you allow the the wicked to prosper at the expense of the righteous? What's going on with this? You you can say it on a lesser degree in in your own life, in your own marriage. Now how long am I going to have to suffer through this and and things not work out the way we want? How how long in my work is the guy that's always doing the wrong thing going to get promoted and I just stay in the same spot? How long? Why? What are you doing? You could... Apply that to any almost of your relationships in your life. And chances are, if you've been in through any sort of suffering whatsoever, these questions have popped into your mind. And they're not new questions. Habakkuk's asking. God knows of these questions. They're not new to God. It's not as if He's surprised and taken back by what's going on here. In fact, when we question God in this way, we actually have a long line of faithful people who have questioned God this way. You read the Psalms and often they're saying, How long, God? What are you doing here, God? Seems like something's off here. So God is not certainly thrown off by these things. It's not new to Him. So people everywhere in all of history have had these kind of questions. And I think the reason that we have these kind of questions is because we're image bearers. That is that we're made in the image of God. And what that means is that we were made to both resemble God, to reflect God, His goodness, His grace, His glory, His mercy, His judgment, His justice. We were made to represent that on the earth. And so when we look around us and we see injustice and we see violence, and we see wrongdoing, and we see all these things going on, we, we have this natural sense of questioning. Why? What's going on here? This seems off here because we're made in the image of God. And so we have these kind of questions all around us. And they don't, don't they seem kind of natural? They almost seem natural. Like You don't have to produce these questions. You can look around and say, like, what in the world is happening here? Why would God allow that? We have these things we call consciences. So we have this sense of justice, a sense of right and wrong. We know when things are off. And it could be good to look around and say, this is not right. And then we should do, I think, what Habakkuk does and turn to God. As Habakkuk does. and says, God, what things aren't right. What's going on? doesn't address his people. First, he addresses God. And yet, I think we need to do so remembering, as I, you don't see this with Habakkuk, but I think it's understood. Habakkuk knows that the very breath he's questioning God with, his breath is given to him by God. And so when we question God, we come with that kind of idea, like, humbly before God saying, like, I'm going to question you here. I think it's right. Like, other people have done it, but I have to know that I'm a creature before God. And so his questioning, even, it's implied that he considers God the righteous one. The sovereign judge, the one who is all-powerful, the one who is all-knowing, who knows, who can hear, who's seen all these things himself. So Habakkuk isn't bringing him fresh news. Habakkuk is saying, like, i got news from the front, here's what's going on, what are you going to do about this? No, God knows these things, and He's appealing to him as one who does. And so he comes to God with all these questions, with a desire even for good. He wants something good and true and honorable and right. He wants things to handle, be handled the, the right way. And so he takes his questions to God. And while God doesn't owe any of us, or Habakkuk, a prophet that he says, He doesn't owe any of us an answer, God is so good. He's so merciful that He not only answers Habakkuk, but He wrote it down for us, that we might get to see it. You see what's happening, right? Like God is, is merciful enough not to say, well, Habakkuk had all these questions and they were good for his time, but we're going to move past that. No, Habakkuk had all these questions, and we get to see the conversation that Habakkuk gets with God. So we see God answer him. Owing Him nothing, God still answers. He says in verse 5, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And that sounds like an awesome verse. Until you find out that the work that He is talking about is a work of judgment. So you continue on. 
For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that, bit, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to see his dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome, and their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves, and their horsemen press proudly on Their horsemen come from afar, and they fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. And they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. So God encourages Habakkuk, go ahead, look and see and be astounded and wonder at what's going on. And what's going on is that He's going to bring judgment upon them with these Chaldeans. And so while, while Habakkuk is, is questioning all these things, God reminds him that I'm doing something that you haven't even thought of, you haven't even heard of. Which is a good reminder for Habakkuk and for all of us that God is doing a billion things all in a single moment. And all of which we have the tiniest fraction of awareness of all that He's doing. It's a good place to remind ourselves of as we question God. That God's doing a lot and we see so very little. But what we do see, we can act on. And while Habakkuk is questioning God, God is doing a million things that he has no clue about, including raising up the Chaldeans to bring judgment upon the people of Judah. That's what he's doing, raising up the Chaldeans. At this time, Assyria would have been the major power. Assyria had taken the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity. They had pretty much owned that area of the world. And they are falling, and the Babylonians are rising. Babylonians, Chaldeans, kind of talking about the same group. They are on the rise. And what God is saying is that He is going to use these Babylonians as an instrument for judgment on Judah. So the question that Habakkuk had is, what are you going to do here? I'm looking around all my people and injustice is going on. We are wicked, we are evil, and the the righteous are suffering, the wicked are moving forward. What are you going to do about this? And God says, I'm going to do something. I'm raising up a nation. They're going to bring judgment upon you. It's the Chaldeans that I'm raising up. And it's clear from this language that this is a dreadful judgment. No, we we have to remember that that this isn't just out of the blue. That God had taught them what to do as His people and He their God. That God had warned them with prophets to return to the Lord when they were unfaithful. He had gone to them over and over again to tell them about the coming judgments. But they had not heeded the warning. They had not received. They would not be taught by God. And their lives reflected it in their living. There was wickedness and violence and idolatry and injustice. They were not being taught by God. And so God is going to bring another teacher in. The teacher of judgment. The teacher that comes from the Chaldeans. And the time of judgment was coming. It was drawing near. But notice something about this instrument that God is going to use. Something that I think Habakkuk picked up on right away. And it's at the end of verse 11. He says of these men, they're guilty men. Whose own might is their God. So let's get this straight. God is going to judge wicked men with wicked men. That's what's happening here. And Habakkuk picks up on this as he noses this glaring detail about the Chaldeans too. And it provokes another question. Verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, You have ordained them as judgment, and You, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You, who are purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? So Habakkuk comes and he's appealing to this everlasting God, this holy God. And it makes him question God because God 
just said, I'm going to use the Chaldeans. They're wicked. They're ungodly men. They, they are, God is their own might. They think we're powerful enough. We don't need God. And, and Habakkuk's like, you're going to use them? You're going to use them to judge us. How can a just God use a wicked nation for judgment? How can a holy God use wickedness to judge wickedness? And honestly, that's a really good question. I'm glad Habakkuk asked it. He knew they deserved punishment. He knew it. He said, what are you doing here, God? Like, we deserve punishment. Where's the judgment that you talked about? But he also probably didn't think it was going to come from somebody like Babylon. A wicked nation. A nation that you could say, and I think Habakkuk would make the case, they're more wicked than we are. They're worse than us. How could you use them to judge us? So this would seem, if God is going to judge the, the people of Judah with the Babylonians, it would seem to say that God is approving of Babylon. That they're approved. That's how they would have thought of things, right? When they went into the promised land. Our God is bigger than your God. You are destroyed. We get the land, right? This is the same thing that happened in the Exodus, right? There's only one God, and He's going to prove over and over and over again with some great signs that He's the only God. And all the Egyptians can know. And all the world can know. There's only one God. Why? Because He's defeating all of the other things that are going on. And so when they see a nation rising up, that nation would have said, look, see, us and our God, we're, we're winning everything. And so when they use that nation against Judah, it's like, well, now your God is less than our God. And Habakkuk would have picked up on that. So if the wicked, Babylon, are used to punish the wicked, Judah, don't the wicked win? And how can a holy God let wicked win? I think that's the question of this book that it surrounds about. What is going on here? How can God use a wicked nation in judgment? How can God use a wicked nation and let them prosper? Let them win these victories? And in many ways, Habakkuk is like Job in that sense. So Job takes up a similar issue. Job questioned God basically. How can God let the righteous individual suffer? And that's his line of questioning and his complaint before God. Habakkuk kind of says something similar. He he just kind of flips the coin a little bit. So how can God let the wicked prosper? How can He let the wicked punish? How can He let the wicked win? And what's really being questioned in both books is this. It's God's justice. How can God be just and the righteous suffer? How can God be just and the wicked prosper? How in the world could a holy God let that happen? Is He just or is He just off? Is He wrong? Is He doing something that is unholy, unrighteous, unjust? And so what's really on trial in Habakkuk and in Job is God's justice. And God graciously reveals and records in the Bible, both in Job and here, that we might see what God is really like. We might know how God would answer these type questions. And He doesn't give every detail. In fact, in Job, He gives very little details. He basically just says... Who are you to question me? Close your mouth. Like, I made everything. You seen the ostrich? I made that. You didn't make that. Stop talking. Right? That's what he tells Job. Not every detail. Not even the details that we desire. But enough to say, I'm God and you're not. But here, he does something different. He doesn't answer every question. He doesn't pander to his questioners. He doesn't give every single detail. But he does respond. And once again, notice... Notice that Habakkuk's posture doesn't seem to be a posture of arrogance. It doesn't seem to be a posture of anger or disrespect. I think that he's questioning God rightly. And so I think this could be summed up in chapter 2, verse 1. I didn't read all of his question. But you can see in chapter 2, verse 1, after he questions God, he says this, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and I will look out to see what he will say to me and what I, what I will answer concerning my complaints. And so what he... What he does is he says, I'm going to to post myself and I'm going to watch for the answer. 
There's no TV, there's no internet, so the way you got news was you would wait for a messenger to come. The messenger would run and bring news from afar. And that's what he's doing. I'm going to stand on this tower. I'm going to watch for that messenger. I'm going to wait here until news comes. I'm going to post myself here and keep watch until God answers. But notice his posture. He is one who says, I need you to hear from God on this. God needs to answer this. I'm going to wait to hear from God. No other answer is going to do. I need God to respond here. So there's a sense of dependency upon God. That God's the one that has to answer. That God's the one that needs to address this thing. There's a sense of certainty. I will be here until He answers. I'm not leaving until He responds. I'm certain that He is going to answer this. I mean, imagine, and maybe in our day, if you sent off an email, an important email, big question, and you just sat at your computer watching the screen until something came back. Like it takes a level of trust and certainty that you're going to get a response that doesn't get lost in, in the email abyss, right? And this is what he's doing. I'm, I'm stationed here because there's a sense of dependency upon God. Certainty that God is going to answer. So to question God rightly, I think, is to do exactly what he does. To be sure that God is going to respond in some way. To be dependent upon God and to sit and wait until that happens. I'm waiting until this end. And when we think of waiting, we, we think of twiddling our thumbs. And waiting is never inactive in the Scripture. It's always this active thing. It's an active trust in God. Especially for us today, who have before us, in this thing we call a Bible, the full and final revelation of God. This is the Scripture. Right? We have this in front of us. It is sufficient for all of our life. To give us all that we need to walk faithfully before God. It is clear. As much as we have the Spirit, we can understand the Scripture. It is authoritative. That is that we can understand that what God says here is our authority over us. And so when we talk about waiting until we find an answer, we're we're talking about waiting by opening up this Bible. And and reading it. And learning from it. And praying it. And asking questions from it. And gathering around believers with this Bible. And believing the things that God has already said in here. This shows our dependency upon God. You have to respond. We have to hear from you. And you have given us your word that we might respond. And listen. And sit under. And submit our lives to you God. And so we we go there. Showing our dependency. Showing that this is our primary source. That we we, we can get answers from all over the place. But we want to hear from God. So what is this. What do you think about this? God, what does your word say here about this question that I have? And God is not scared or put off by our questions. So when we do this, what we're displaying is a complete and total willingness to say, what you say, I want to do. I'm submitting myself to you. I'm dependent upon you. And you're my authority. You speak. I listen. That's our posture. And so since we're dependent upon God, whatever He says, even if we don't like the answer, we say, thus saith the Lord. We depend upon Him to act. And so in Job, God doesn't really answer. But in Habakkuk, God gives some more answers to some of the questions that Habakkuk has. So he says, I'm stationing myself on the watchers. I'm going to stay here until you answer. And, and God does answer. The next chapter talks about God's answer. Now, he gives a partial answer, but he assures him that more is to come. So in chapter 2, verse 2, the Lord answered again. Notice how merciful it is. God doesn't owe Habakkuk a thing, and yet he answers The Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. There's there's more to come in Habakkuk. This is a partial answer, more is to come. And it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. So a certain vision awaits. God is going to unfold his plan more fully. He doesn't do so here. But while waiting, while he's waiting on the fuller answer, what's he to do? 
He's to have faith. Live by faith, not by sight. Now, how needed would this have been for Habakkuk? He, he looks around and he sees evil. He looks at Babylon coming and he sees evil. Right? All he sees is God is not answering. God is not doing what is just. God is not doing the right thing. And so God encourages the righteous are going to live by faith. That is, you're going to continue living faithfully if you trust me. That's what it means to live by faith. You're, you're living out faith. You're clinging to God. You're clinging to His Word. You're clinging to His promises. No matter the circumstances around you. You know what God has said in His law. You know what He's promised to His people. You know all those things. And so you cling to them even when Babylon is coming on. Even when there's injustice all around. That's what it means to live by faith. He said there's more to come so wait for it to unfold. But here's the partial answer. Is that Babylon as well will be judged. So in chapter 2. Once again, flying through some of these things, as God answers, He gives five woes to the Babylonians. This would have been an indicator, a reminder, like, I'm going to use Babylon, but they're not getting away either. There's woes upon them, judgment upon them for their actions. So we're going to go through those in chapter 2, verse 6, is the first one. Shall not all of these take up their taunt against Him with scoffing and riddles for Him and say, Woe to Him who heaps up what is not His own for how long and loads Himself with pledges. So, woe in the way that they are getting what they're getting. They're they're getting land and doing these things the wrong way and it's going to be heaped upon them. He says in verse 8, Because you have plundered many nations, and the Babylonians did plunder many nations, all the remnants of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and to all who dwell in them. It's going to come back on them. That's the first woe. You are going to face some of the things that you did to others. The second woe, starting in 2.9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. So they're saying, woe to you. You're finding security in your might and your grandeur and your greatness. And and woe to you. There's not a place that is away from harm from the reach of God's arm. We saw this with Edom, right? They thought we're in this high place. No one can reach us. And God's like, you're coming down. And they did. They came down. Security isn't found there. So woe to them who think it is. In chapter 2, verse 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. These people were known for being wicked people, evil people, harsh people as dragging people into slavery and captivity. And behold, it's not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. They're laboring, he says, over and over again for glory and for fame. This is his uh, you could define Babylon by this. They desire for glory and this uh, standing up in, in, in despite of God. Like, we don't need God. We're great Babylon. What do we need? And he says, you're, you're laboring in vain for your glory. And yet there's one whose glory remains. And that's the glory of the Lord. So all that they're laboring for, that's actually found in God. He's the one who's going to have glory. He's going to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. He will be certain in His glory where you are laboring in vain. The fourth woe is in 2.15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You humiliated others, and he's basically saying, you too are going to be humiliated in the same way that you humiliated others. The fifth woe, verse 19. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it, but the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. He's saying idolatry, that the ones that the Babylonians give to, which was just whatever idolatry that any of the nations would have, they just made up a god, they, they, they made it out of wood or gold or precious metals or whatever, and they thought, this is God, and He says, that's foolishness. 
That is foolishness. That God is the only one who is the true God. That He's in His holy temple. Whereas you speak to your gods and they don't answer because they don't have ears or eyes or on and on we could go. You come before God and you keep silence. Why? Because He's true God. He's the judge. You don't have anything to say before Him unless He should say something to you. Let all keep silence before this judge. In fact, Isaiah, if you remember when we went through Isaiah, Isaiah talks about the gods of the Babylonians and how they're, they're a burden upon the people. That there was really a, a feast where they would have one of their gods go to another one of their gods. And they would carry it from the temple to the other god. So either the donkeys or the people, one of them are going to actually be burdened by their god physically. And Isaiah says, this, this is your God. Whereas the God of Israel is the one who actually carried His people and put them where He put them. But the description here that you see is they're calling out to this God and there's no response. This is not bring up the image of, of Elijah on the mountain where the, they're calling out to Baal. Cutting themselves, crying, dancing, doing all these things and yet they're not hearing a thing because their God doesn't exist. It's not real. And that's the description here that's going on. And so what God is saying in these five woes on the Babylonians is that He's answering Habakkuk's question. How, how could you use a, a wicked nation to judge us? And God is saying, that wicked nation, they'll be judged too. That they're going to have stuff fall on them as well. That God's use of Babylon wasn't His approval of Babylon and all that they do and all their practices. These five woes show that He, he denounces a large portion of their practices in these woes. But that He's saying that God is the sovereign one. He's sovereign over all. He can choose any nation He wants to use as an instrument for His good, for His glory, and not be approving of that nation. So these woes show us that Babylon too is going to face judgment. That God is still just. That the wicked don't win in the end. That even though God is using Babylon, that's not the end of the story. He's going to do what is right. And this is such good news for the righteous. And the five woes doesn't sound like something that's going to bring a lot of encouragement and joy, but I think it did to Habakkuk. Like, this is good news. That God isn't just going to let wicked go and it just be okay with everybody in the world. That He's going to judge the wicked. We need this. But when we read this and we see this, we still know that this is a hard thing to swallow. And I think Psalm 73 helps give voice to this. Psalm 73, starting in verse 3. When, it, when we look at this, God using the wicked to judge, it seems like man, they're prospering, they're doing well. How could you do this? And this is what we could see. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Babylon was a great nation. They were destroying nations. So the psalmist is looking around and seeing something similar. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are flat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. And therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and they speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues stretch through the earth. Therefore, His people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? In other words, they're saying, God, God doesn't know because we keep going forward and it's okay. That's what they're saying. That's their boast. And he says, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed this generation of your children. In other words, you look around. Wicked is really going forward. They're prospering and yet I'm suffering. 
I've tried to keep my heart clean for you. For what reason? Like, it looks like they're doing good and I'm not. And so, when we think of God using the wicked, it can still be this thing that's hard to swallow. Because there are going to be times when we're looking around and we're seeing what Habakkuk saw. Why is Assyria winning? Why is Babylon winning? Why are the wicked prospering and we seem to be suffering here? Why is this happening? We're on the wrong side, it seems like, of what's going on. And there's going to be times when it seems like that. That God is executing His justice for the wrong side, not working for the good of His people. And the answer they give to Habakkuk is wait. Wait and trust. They're going to face judgment as well. They too are going to find that they will get judgment for all of their wicked deeds as well. Wait and trust that God, He's still sovereign. He's bending all things that He might receive glory, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the water cover the seas, that He's working for His purposes, that it is sure and certain that He will receive that glory, that the, the wicked will receive judgment, that the righteous will go forward according to the will of the Lord. And so don't lose heart when wickedness seems to be surrounding and threatening to undo everything. That God is still in control. That God is still just. That He's going to bring judgment on the wicked. God's going to take care of the wicked. So we could sing, And though this world with devils filled, and they seem to be filling the world and doing much harm, and they threaten to endure us, we will not fear. For God has willed His truth to triumph through us. That, that we can trust God. That He is going to always do what's right. That He is just. That He is going to take care of the wicked in time. It may not seem like it now, but this reminder to Habakkuk is that soon, soon they're going to face what they deserve. So the judgment that's spoken of here against Babylon is part of the answer to Habakkuk, of what's going on here. It's part of the answer to the question of God's justice. But God goes even further to answer the question of justice. We look in chapter 3, verses 1-3, through 3, and I see it through Habakkuk's prayer. It seems as if Habakkuk got some sort of the vision that was promised at the beginning of chapter 2. God delivers this vision to Habakkuk in chapter 3 as part of a fuller response, a fuller answer to all that God is doing. So he says, this is a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet according to Shiganath. Man, these sound so much better when I read them alone. <laughs> o Lord... I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. That God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise. And so what seems to be going on is that this is that awaited vision from chapter 2, the one that God said, when this comes, post it. Let everybody hear it. Let them know about it. That this is what Habakkuk gets while he's praying. And it recalls the past. And so we see Mount Paran. This was this place where Israel was after the Exodus. They went with Moses to this mountain. So he's recalling a significant place in the history of Israel. This, this is going to matter. And so what is, seems to be going on in this vision is that Habakkuk is recalling, that God is bringing to his memory what he has done in the Exodus and in the conquest of the Promised Land. This is going to make more sense, hopefully, as we continue. But he says in verse 4, that his brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. You can think about the Mount Sinai even, with God delivering the, the Ten Commandments, delivering His law, about how His power was displayed, that all the people know that the earth even shook. And the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills were sank low. His were the everlasting ways. 
Do you see all of this going on? Verse 4, His brightness. And verse 5, before Him, pestilence. So you see plagues in, in the Exodus. You see Him as they went before the, the promised land as they're getting conquests. Like God is driving people out before them by His mighty working. In verse 7 and 8, I saw the tents of Kushan in the affliction. The curtains in the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers of your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation... All of these, right? see the imagery here, right? These nations that he references here, many, they were trembling as the people of God were, were taking the promised land. As they were coming into the land, they had heard the works that God had done, and they were trembling in fear before them because they knew what God had done. The Nile, the Red Sea, the Jordan River, you can all see how, how waters were shaking before them. That at the word of God, they stop and they move and they do what He commands. And it's almost as if God is demanding and commanding and even maybe judging the rivers is the, the image here. You look at verse 11, the sun and the moon stood still in their place and at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear once again you, they, there are all this stuff that's going on that God is doing this supernatural that God is leading them forward in, in the exodus and in the conquest of the promised land including these people and so what seems to be happening is that God is making him recall what he has already done in maybe the most significant event in Israel's history here's how God delivered here's how he stretched out his hand to save here's how he stretched out his hand to judge and he says why does he do these? Verse 12, that you march through the earth in fury and you thresh the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. So he went out for salvation and he crushes the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. So the judgment, the destruction that he brings on the wicked is thorough. So this is the heart of the vision right here in 12 and 13. That what he's to recall, what he's to make known is right here. That God went after his people. That it didn't matter what nation had them in captivity. It didn't matter what nation was in front of them. How strong, how great, how mighty. That God went out for his people. That he worked for the good and the salvation of his anointed. That he fought and no nation was able to stay his hand. He got his prize and he put them where he wanted to put them. God goes out for salvation. But also is seen here in this big moment of their history is judgment. That God saved His people from something bad. That He saved His people from the wicked, from Egypt, from these other nations that were doing wicked. That He delivered their enemies into their hands in the promised land. That is, that He saved His people and carried out judgment on the wicked nations. A thorough judgment. So what's going on here is He's saying, God has a proven track record of this, of salvation of His people and judgment on the wicked. No matter where they are, He saves His people. No matter how scattered they are, he brings them back and he goes out and fights for his anointed. No matter who the wicked are, he brings judgment upon them. No matter how strong and minded they are, God can bring them down. And he can use them for what he wants to use them for. So God is both in this, the Redeemer and the Judge. The Merciful and the Just. That he is completely holy in all of his dealings, in all of this. And so the Exodus and the, the Promised Land conquest show that things are moving in a direction. That they've always been moving in a direction since that time that God called the earth and to all creation to existence. That everything has been moving at the will of God in the direction that God wants it to move. And the direction is that He has saved His people and He judges the wicked. That's the direction that we're going. So this is a reminder for Habakkuk, for the people of God, of God's character, of His actions, and of His judgment that both inform and help the people of God right where they are in the midst of Babylon invading them. So much so that Habakkuk can say in verse 16, as we continue down, I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones, and my legs tremble beneath me. Yet, 
I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. There's this calm, reserved confidence that God is going to bring them down to. That He knows God's character. That this vision has reminded Him who God is. That He's just. That He's merciful. That He goes out for the salvation of His people. That He goes out for the judgment of the wicked. That He knows that God is saved in the past. He can deliver from anything and so He's going to wait. I'm going to wait quietly before God. That He is going to maintain His character. That He is going to uphold the right. And He waits confidently. God will act. God's going to do this. Even when it doesn't seem like it. When Babylon is encroaching. When Babylon is getting ready to take us over. Even when it doesn't seem like God is working. He is going to wait. This is 2-4 lived out. Where the righteous are living by faith. He can't see it. He gets a vision of what God has done. He thinks that this is the vision of what God will do. This is consistent with who God is. But he believes it. He lives out 2 verse 4. So he's resolved to have confidence. You see some awesome verses in Habakkuk as he ends. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. And I'll take joy in the God of my salvation. This is 2-4. Lived, prayed, declared before the people. It seems like in the circumstance, the fig trees aren't blossomed. There's no food. There's no fruit. There's no produce. The fields are of no food. We're cut off from the fold. There's no herd in the stalls. Everything is bad. Everything is caving down around him. And yet, he is resolved to do this. Rejoice in the Lord. Take joy in the God of my salvation. That is, Habakkuk has confidence no matter the circumstance. In fact, he has confidence in the middle of really, really bad circumstances. How does he do that? How how does he live that out? Well, I think it's important that we know where his confidence is found. He says it again. I'm going to rejoice where? In the Lord. That I will take joy in what? The God of my salvation. That his primary hiding place, his refuge, is not in circumstances. It's not in their power. It's not in the Babylonians being weak. It's found in God alone. In the God of my salvation. His circumstances don't determine for him his joy. His demeanor. His living before people. He doesn't look inwardly and say, you know what? I can handle this situation. I have it within me to just deal with what's going on. No, he says, my faith is in God. In who God is. In what God has done. In where history is going. Because I've seen it go there before. And in his confidence he says, God, verse 19, the Lord is my strength. He makes, me, he makes my feet like the deer's. And He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with string instruments. So in his own strength, he got to a place of desperation, probably despair, questioning God, wondering what's happening. But when the Lord is his strength, he rejoices in the middle of a Babylonian onslaught. In the middle of a, an army that's much too big for them to handle. In the middle of the vine being cut off, no produce around, he says that my feet are like the deer and I can move on high places. Then the picture is of, of steep slopes with, with lots of rocks this is where the, the mountain goats and the deer. They, they can walk on these things, but people try to go up them and they fall mightily. Like they just look ridiculous. They can't do it. We weren't made to do those kinds of things. 
But he pictures here this like prancing around safely. No big deal on these high places. He says he treads on the high places. And so what is going on here? That is that he's not in his own strength. That he says that God is my strength. That he is my only strength. That this is all that I have. That all those, those places are highly dangerous. That I'm safe and I can tread in those places. That the the Babylonian invasion was horrible and scary. That the the produce being cut off was complete destruction around me. And yet, I'm not falling down the mountain. Because God is my strength. So when Habakkuk speaks of treading on high places, he knows and he's confident in what God is doing. Because he's seen what he's done. Because he's seen what's consistent with his character and his nature. And so he trusts those places are still safe. God's in control. He's just. He's merciful. He saves His people. And so those places no longer seem scary anymore. He's going to exact justice. He's going to go out for the salvation of His people. This is what God always does. So I wonder if we're not like Habakkuk at times, looking around and we can see the circumstances around us as overwhelming, maybe despairing and hard. Babylonians are coming. Produce is cut off. Work is really hard. Everyone hates me. Threatened my life. All these things could be part of our story. And what are we going to cling to? What are we going to hold to? What's going to keep us from sliding down the mountain? It's a reminder of who we have before us. We have a God with a proven track record. That He always goes out for the salvation of His people. And He says, when I get one, they don't ever get back out again. I keep them. That He's going to exact justice upon His enemies. That those who are beheading our brothers and sisters aren't just running scot-free. They either turn and repent or they face the judgment of God. We can know that. We can have confidence in that. History is moving in this direction and the end is that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. And so it matters that we study the minor prophets even though you may not like it right now. It matters. Because what we're seeing is what we call salvation history. We saw the exodus. We get to move forward in the story. That God brings judgment upon His people through the Babylonians and they go to a distant place. God saves them from there too and brings them back. Even then, they're in a worse place than they even thought because they're captive to sin and they can't overcome it. And they don't have a sacrifice that will atone for their sins. And so God goes after His people. This time He took on flesh. It's the culmination of all that He's talking about that we as New Testament believers get to look back on and say, yes, God has a proven track record. We see it all the way up to Habakkuk. But we get to look back through and we can say, yeah, God has a proven track record of always going out for the salvation of His people. We saw it because He came. Came after us. And He didn't come in judgment. He came for the salvation of His people, He says in John chapter 3. We know even more so that God is moving history in a direction. That one of the big climaxes was when Jesus came and died and rose. And that we're still in the climax until the very end. And at the end, we're going to celebrate and know that salvation is found in Jesus. The one who was and is and is to come. And at that culmination of all things, judgment will be leveled on the wicked as well. Because this is what He has always done and this is what He is working to. And in the middle of that, we know that He Himself is our strength. That in the midst of a violent overthrow from all that's around us, we tread on the high places with the strength that God provides. And so we get to remember that this is where we're going. That the minor prophets point us in this direction. That this is what God has done. This is what He's answering now. But this is where it's going. 
We get to remember the one who was and is and is to come. And in fact, Jesus told us to keep a meal in remembrance of these things. That we take the Lord's Supper as a sacred family meal for the people of God where they are reminded that Jesus came. That He went out for the rescue of His people. That He actually accomplished that with His death and His resurrection. That He obtained for Himself a people for His glory. And that He is going to come. Part of that, this meal is a meal of faith. That we're saying, we don't deserve a place at this table, but Jesus made a way. That we don't deserve a place with God even now, but Jesus still makes a way. And that we don't deserve to be delivered from judgment when it is to come, but Jesus will deliver. It's a meal of faith. So we're reminding ourselves in this meal, Jesus came, Jesus saved, Jesus is still saving, and then He's coming again. It's going to be a day of glory and a day of judgment. If you're a believer, this is a day of glory. If you're not, we encourage you not to take this meal. And we want to say that judgment comes upon the wicked. And this is what God has said He promised He will do. But that even now, while we wait for that judgment to come, He offers a chance for you to respond. Take Jesus instead. Don't take this meal. Repent of your sins. Believe in Christ. And take Him. And we'll prepare you to take this supper next time. But if you're a believer, come and be reminded that history has always been moving in a direction. Always at the direction of God. And then it's sure and certain, so much so that we can say, we can live by faith even now. Let's pray again. Father, thanks for Your Word. Thanks for Habakkuk. May we be um, rightly taught by it. We learn rightly from it. That we not just skip over places in Your Word because we don't understand stuff. Because we don't get the context. God, may we dive in deep because we know Your Word is good and it shows us so much about who You are. God, I hope that Habakkuk has, has shown us that the questions have a place before You. And that you're merciful enough to answer. May we heed what you have said. And God, I pray that all of us who are believers, that we would go out of here with this confidence. Confidence in what you have done. Confidence in who you are. Confidence in where we're going. For those who don't, God, I pray that you would capture their hearts. Turn their affections and their attentions toward yourself. And that they would take Jesus. God, thank you for coming out for the salvation of your people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.